Hello, and welcome to the World Fellows podcast. My name is Emma Skye, and I'm director of the World Fellows program at Yale. My guest today is Abdurrahman Malik, a journalist, educator, and cultural organizer. Abdurrahman, welcome to the podcast. It's good to be here, Emma. So tell me, where is home for you? You're very hard to place. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a good question. I think, you know, my, I'm, I'm, I'm a son of immigrants, but my dad was also the son of immigrants. My, my family is from the Punjab, and my father was born in Amritsar before the partition of India and Pakistan um, in 1947. And so my my grandfather's generation traveled from one side of Punjab to the other. And my father traveled from Pakistan to Britain to Canada, where I was born. And Toronto is my is my first home. But I think it was Salman Rushdie who talked about the, the, the curse of migration. And I remember in, he has this essay um, in his collection of essays, uh, Imaginary Homelands, where he where he describes um, the, 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 the curse of the migrant is that they have their two feet in four places at the same time, or that they can't put their foot down in the same place twice. So I think I have something of that sort of, you could call it maybe spiritual DNA in me. Um, I've never really associated with nation, although I am in many ways most certainly Canadian. Um, but I have always associated with cities, and I and I and I have feel a great deal of love and affection for Toronto. It's it's a, it's a place where I feel very much at home. But for the last fourteen years, I've been in London. I stayed so long they they gave me a maroon passport, which was also a European passport, but will not be for uh, for very much longer. And and in some ways, if if Toronto was the, was my place of my birth, I think in many ways I found my true soul in, 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 in London. Uh, it's been a city that's, that's given me so much, and that's just, it, it is truly the, 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 if there was a city I would say is the capital of the world, I would say it's London. <laughs> More so than New York. More so than New York, because the world crosses London in all kinds of interesting ways. And in New York, people almost come to become New Yorkers and then to become American. But in London, we're all Londoners, but not mm-hmm. always British. And it's the place, because it was the imperial capital, the, the emerald city of its time, um, it's the place where, where flights cross and paths cross and educations cross and ideas cross in a way like I've never experienced anywhere in the world. And I think in, in some ways that's why I, I feel such affinity to it not only because it was the place I fell in love, it's not the place where I moved after I got married, it's the place my son was born, but I feel like London is a place which which, which nourishes you, but not just from one stream, a dozen stream, a hundred streams. And it's amazing when urban spaces can do that, and that's one of those urban spaces that can mm. do that. Now, you're a man of faith. Faith plays a very large role in your life. How did you come to find such joy and inspiration in Islam? You know, I, I grew up in a in a in a faithful home. My father uh, was a, a political activist for an Islamic political party in in Pakistan, and um, my mother was incredibly well read and and uh, devout, but but not initially in a kind of um, 
you know, in a kind of a hijab wearing outward way. My my mother actually adopted the hijab much later in her in her life. But faith was really important for them. And I think part of their connection to faith wasn't just the ritual, but it was the art and the culture of Islam. My father enjoyed calligraphy. My mother loved poetry. So our house growing up was filled with what I would call the ornaments of religion, you know, uh, art and culture and, and music and poetry. And and that brought a lot of joy. And, and, and ultimately, the ritual, too, brought a lot of joy. And community brought a lot of joy. My parents, when they came to Canada, there was no other blood family. You know, there were no brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles. We created a family. And that family was this incredibly diverse, multicultural Muslim community at first. And my father professionally worked with people of the, of, of, of the Jewish faith because Toronto was a funny place in the early 1970s where... You know, if you weren't white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, uh, there was a lot of, uh, you know, subtle and not so subtle discriminations, and 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 the Jews of Toronto faced that as well. So, my my family found great affinity with 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 Jewish families and other people who had that immigrant experience. And I think as I've as I've grown up, faith for me has been something that's 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 nourished me, um, has given me pathways to meaning has given me community, but I think has also given me incredible richness because I've realized that the best of Islam is in the human uh, exertion of intellectual, cultural, creative effort to understand God. And what greater, um, what greater goal but to understand the meaning of the universe. And in that uh, energy expended to understand the meaning of the universe, great civilizations uh, are created and great conflicts uh, often emerge as well. And we have to, I, I feel like I have to embrace all those parts of my history. But I continue, even at times when I've, when I've doubted religion and I've, and I've challenged myself on religion, I find myself coming back and finding, finding a home in, in, in Islam and, and an identity as a Muslim. So what makes, you know, a young Muslim growing up, mm -hmm. what would make one go in the path, in the direction towards fundamentalism, mm -hmm. Salafism, mm -hmm. and another go much more in the path towards spirituality, Sufism? Mm -hmm. What are the influences that lead for that oh, direction? Emma, you, you have a knack for asking the... the the right question and the, and, and the tough question. I think at the political moment we're living now, we are in a time when, when religion is not merely a confession, but it becomes wrapped up. And I think in some ways it always has, but I think we see it in sharp relief today that religion becomes wrapped up with one's political identity. And I do feel that in a time of great political confusion, intellectual confusion, a time when the planet is threatened, but also I think human security is, is threatened. Our livelihoods are threatened by a shaky economic order. People are going to look for answers that are straightforward. They're going to cling to rules, regulations um, that feel safe. And I think in some ways what Salafism and fundamentalisms in all faith traditions offer is a sense of safety. 
maybe not safety in itself, but a sense of safety, that one is good with the creator of the heavens and the earth, with God, and so therefore one is offered a kind of a protection from the vicissitudes of social, political, economic, and personal life that surround them. And I found that even in my own experience, the times in my life and there were times when I when I started to veer towards what I would call literalism. And that happened around the time I was graduating from high school and coming into university. I met a group of, of, of Salafi brothers, and what they offered was was community. They were wonderful uh, people, people I'm still in touch with. Um, but they offered a sense of security, community, brotherhood, um, answers that were straightforward and connected to text. And I think over the years that followed, what I, what I recognized was that there was a comfort in that, but there was also a falsity in that. And the falsity was that it didn't encompass the tradition, the interpretive uh, tradition with its breadth and its depth and its creativity. And I think when I, when I rediscovered what I've come to call the classical tradition, of Islam, I found at the very heart of that was uh, was Sufism, was Tasawwuf. It wasn't something separate from Islam mm-hmm. itself, but but really welded um, to all aspects of the of the Islamic tradition. And in my own work, I think what I've tried to do with 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 my colleagues and my mentors in various parts of the world has been how can we unlock that richness for young people and tell them that it's okay to live in the gray areas a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's it's absolutely possible to be devout and to and to and to find peace and spiritual edification in, in rituals, but one can also live with doubt and tension. And I think what spirituality does is allows doubt and tension to doubt and tension to be contained by this connection to uh, to God. Because ultimately what is religion, I ask myself? It's a way of living. It's a way of being. It's a way of being good in the world. And to be good in the world is, is to be good to others and also to facilitate goodness. That's the heart for me of, of Sufism and the Sufi enterprise. And that should be the heart of religion. And I think my work in, in its own way, whether it's been successful or not, has been to, to try and communicate that in a way that makes sense for people today and particularly young people today. I mean, you've been very committed in your work to crossing the divides between cultures and faiths. Mm-hmm. Can you share some of the experiences that you've had? Well, I, you know, it's it, it's it's interesting because because I think I think often when we think about interfaith, it becomes very dry and boring. You know, mm-hmm. uh, bearded men and. Um, and uh, you have got a very nice beard. Uh, thank you, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's well cultivated, and, and 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 probably has more to do with, uh, with 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 fashion than religion. But you know, when when the bearded men of various traditions sit down in in a room and they they share platitudes with one another, and then they have chai or samosas or tea or biscuits or shortbread cookies. Um, the interfaith that my that I've been mentored in really is the interfaith that's difficult. It's messy. We're going to get into stuff. But we're also going to allow politics and culture and the world that we live in to come into our conversation. The recent project which I've worked on with with two former world fellows um, in Indonesia has been – has tried to do precisely that. We've taken 
150 young leaders, half of them who are Muslim, half of them who are not, and they come from cities where there has been interreligious conflict, particularly anti-Christian, anti-Hindu, anti-Buddhist um, attacks have taken place in those cities. And we've, we've brought these young people together and through dialogue, uh, facilitation, uh, skills, and also through storytelling and drama, we've given these young people the tools to tell their own story of, of why they are who they are, why are they young leaders for whom faith and confession is important, but then we've also forced them to come together to tell a story of what it means to be Indonesian across religious fractures or cultural divides or or, or, or ethnic fissures. And, and to watch that process in action, young people come together who are leaders in their own right, experts in their own communities, come together and and tell a story together, find common ground, and then commit to taking that process into their own communities is 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 marvelous. And that's what's happening with this project right now. It's called Cafe Charita, the Cafe of Stories. And we're in the process now of, of replicating our, tra- our, our, the young people we trained are, are now replicating the experience that they had. And we've literally had hundreds and hundreds of young people engage with one another in ways that they probably have have never done before, and 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 that's the hope. We th- mm. those are the kind of projects, and the, the, those are the kind of movements. Really, I think we need to be creating at this time and in places where where conflict is is real, and and it's risky to do work in those areas. And and I, and I think w- w- my hope is that over time, our work will in, f- in fact get riskier, um, and go to the places where. Initially thought we wouldn't be able to go. They're a little bit dangerous, but they need this kind of work the most. And in the UK, you'd been working with the Radical Middle Way. Mm-hmm. What's that? Well, the Radical Middle Way was established uh, by my colleague, Fuad Nahdi, along with a group of us in the aftermath of the 7-7 uh, attacks in London. And we had all been working for a, for a magazine, a Muslim current affairs magazine called Q News. And, you know... After 7-7, we had a bit of a choice. You know, we were deeply engaged in our communities. We were reporting on those communities. We were reporting not only for our own magazine, but actually for mainstream media. And we were a resource to the BBC and to Channel 4 and to RTE, the New York Times, CNN, um, on issues of British Islam. But it became clear to us that we couldn't be mere reporters any longer, that we had to we had to engage deeply in communities. So the Radical Middle Way was founded in 2005, December, as a way of engaging Muslim communities in the UK on critical issues of the, which arose at the intersection of politics and religion, what it means to be faithful and a citizen, what it means to be a British Muslim, um, what does it mean to be loyal uh, in, a, in, 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 in political language, what is it, what, how do we feel about suicide bombing and, 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 and terrorism and violence as a means for political change? And we were really exploring this through the lens of, of what we hoped would be authoritative and authentic religious, religious leadership. Um, because the religious leadership coming from al-Qaeda and, and later on from ISIS or ISIL was actually illegitimate religious leadership. It was, it was, it was religious leadership in, in false garb. And, um, you know, in our first year, we engaged with almost 75,000 people in the United Kingdom. And, and we had grants from Her Majesty's government in the UK and a lot of freedom to do amazing work. And, and we were able to take that work around the world to Indonesia, to Pakistan, to Sudan, to Mali, to Morocco and other places. And, and in each of these places, we tried to work with local partners in, in, in what we hoped was a, with some integrity and authenticity 
on on the kind of things that we could do that would really address issues of of building resilience to violent extremism in, in those particular geographies. And, and that's what a lot of the work of the radical middle way has been, has been about strengthening the mainstream and building resilience. And, and that's not to say that religion is the prime mover of violence. I don't believe that. But I believe it's part of the nexus which results and can result in violence. I think politics is, is at the very heart of these debates. But, you know, politics needs, needs uh, oxygen. And often it is religious rhetoric and often, for some people, religious belief, which gives oxygen to violent politics. And I think that, I think that is deeply problematic, and it's the, the problem that we've tried to address in our own little way. Abdul Rahman, great talking to you. Thank you very much. Always wonderful talking to you, Emma. Thank you for having me.